series on responding to world religions or false religions, um, because not every one of these is a cult. Several of them will be. And next week we'll have flyers of what we're going to cover on which day. So uh, be looking for that. <clears throat> the lot has fallen upon me to discuss Roman Catholicism. Anybody ever heard of Roman Catholicism? A few of you have. <laughs> so, so Roman Catholicism, I mean, I could just say this. They would disagree with what Paul writes here, that being justified is a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith, this was to demonstrate his righteousness and the forbearance of God he passed over sins previously committed. To demonstrate his righteousness so that he would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. I could just simply say Roman Catholicism would disagree with that, that we're saved by faith alone, by grace alone, our five solas that we have up here. Um, they would disagree with every one of those, but we're going to look in a little bit more detail. It's estimated that about 70 million Catholics, actually, let's pray. Father, we do ask that you would go before us even now to clear our minds, to help us to come with teachable hearts, and Lord, that we might learn those errors that Roman Catholics hold to so that we might be able to engage them and speak truth to them, and point them to Christ. In Jesus' name, amen. Roughly 70 million Catholics in America, most of these are born into the Catholic religion, right? So from the time, from infancy, they're taught that salvation comes through the church as they merit saving faith through the sacraments and perform religious rituals of good works uh, to be justified and re-justified. Roman Catholicism is often called the plus religion because how, what, do they, what do they believe? It's the Catholic salvation's based on Jesus plus Mary, right? You've got to have Mary there. It's faith plus works. It's grace plus merit. It's scripture plus tradition. And the blood of Jesus plus purgatory. Catholics do not know that any addition to the gospel is a denial of the sufficiency of the work of Jesus Christ. In addition to the, the gospel also nullifies the saving grace of God. Now back in 1994 there was a, um, what would you call it, uh, some agreement between Catholics and Protestants and in 1994, in March 29th, Evangelicals and Catholics Together was published. And you had leading evangelicals that actually signed off on that, um, as well as the leading Catholics. And of course, you know, the intention sounds good. I have several of these uh, little um, magazines up here. Uh, you're free to take one. This is written some time ago by Richard Bennett, who himself is a former Roman Catholic priest, and he's written several books. We have some in our church library. But part of, the, part of this is really an attack on those men such as Charles Colson and, believe it or not, even J.I. Packer. And I'm not big on let's gang up and attack them. 
But it does list several errors and truth in here. And so I found it helpful. So we have some up here. Britta was kind enough um, to get that uh, for us. But really, an agreement like this kind of blurs the lines, right, as far as um, what do we really believe, what do we not believe, how how far can we compromise, and that kind of thing. Um, So let's talk about Catholic traditions for a moment. And actually, a few resources, I should have printed out more of these, but what Roman Catholics find when they study their own Bible. This is just two pages long. They will find, they will find, they will find that Peter, also called Simon, who claimed to be the first pope, was a married man. They would find, da 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 anyway, it just kind of unpacks like what they would find if they even just studied their own Bible. So this is one thing that's up here, and then some of you received this. This is just from Got Questions, uh, Roman Catholicism, and then the Bible um, answer teaching on that, so... Simple things like justification as a means of baptism. The Pope is infallible. No, God alone is infallible. And so those will be up here. So let's talk about the Catholic traditions. When did the Catholic Church begin? Well, they would say, what? First century, right? (laughs) So uh, they would say before Peter's death even, right? Because, I mean, he was the first Pope, right? According to them. But uh, basically the era of Constantine, you really had the Roman Catholic Church coming together. I didn't look up the exact date. But since then, it's kind of like a moving target. They'll add this little doctrine. They'll add that doctrine. This pope adds this. And it's just what I call a list of heresies, really, that goes from like 400 all the way up to the 1900s. And I'm just going to read some of these to you. Um, All of these traditions have crept into the church, nullifying the word of God and his saving grace. And uh, so this list just shows this gradual departure over years and years from the pure gospel of salvation. Each of these go directly against scripture. So in the year 431, there was a proclamation that infant baptism regenerates the soul. So that was one of the first ones, right? Infant baptism regenerates the soul. Uh, we would call that baptismal regeneration, right? At baptism, a Roman Catholic priest, that that soul is regenerated. The year 500, the Mass was instituted to re-sacrifice Jesus for the remission of sin. So the Mass, right? The, the elements that we would call the Lord's Supper, um, is a re-sacrificing of the body and blood of Jesus. Uh, 593, a declaration that sin needed to be purged, established by Pope Gregory I. The year 600 introduced prayers directed to Mary and dead saints and to angels. So basically directing the church to pray to all these other things. 786 AD, the worship of the cross, images, and relics is authorized in the church. 995, canonization of dead people as saints instituted by Pope John the 15th. The year 1000, attendance to the mass is mandatory under the penalty of a mortal sin. So you see this fear, right? This fear that 
that they would instill into the people. That they would be, you know, shaking. They've got to worship the cross. They've got to pray to Mary and all the saints. And, and now it's mandatory to be in attendance. 1079, celibacy of the priesthood, directed by Pope Gregory VII. Okay? Which nowhere is taught in Scripture. <laughs> None of these are. Um, 1190, we, with Reformation Day coming up, we were familiar with the sale of indulgences, right? Tetzel going around talking about, if you give me some money, put it in the coffer, your mother or your brother that's in purgatory will have their sentence shortened, right? And so the sale of indulgences to reduce the time of purgatory came about in 1190. 1215, transubstantiation proclaimed by Pope Innocent III. Who wants to describe transubstantiation? Yes, yeah, so the liturgy, when the priest holds this up, and it literally rhymes with hocus pocus, um, but in the Latin, right? And, and so basically, when he's setting apart, those elements are now becoming the body and blood of Christ. And they do this daily in the Roman Catholic Church. It's a re-sacrificing of Christ again and again and again. So you rip out pages such as, it is finished. You rip out pages that, that there's no more... Uh, payment for sin and they hold to that and then confession of sins to priests i don't know how they went all those years till 1215 but uh, this again instituted by pope innocent the third by the way around the early 1200s was when there was a raising up of a second pope and a third pope and it was like this schism that was taking place in the roman catholic church and this pope's an anathema to the other pope and vice versa. When you study church history, it is kind of an irony to see <laughs> the inconsistencies um, that they hold to. Uh, 1438, purgatory elevated from doctrine to dogma in the Council of Florence. Now, in 1545, we had the Council of Trent. All kinds of heresies were canonized then. And one of those was tradition claimed to be equal with the authority of the Bible. So all of these traditions, they're saying those is equal to the teaching of the Bible. I mean, the 1546 Apocrypha books declared as canon by Council of Trent. And then skip all the way up to the 1800s, 1854, the Immaculate Conception of Mary proclaimed by Pope Pius IX. And then 1870, the infallibility of the Pope, proclaimed by the Vatican Council. 1922, the Virgin Mary proclaimed as co-redeemer with Jesus. Does that just kind of get under your skin? It does me. <laughs> let's, let's bring about another reformation. I mean, these people need evangelized if they really believe this. Mary is a co-redeemer. And then 18, 1950, the Assumption of the Virgin Mary into Heaven, proclaimed by Pope um, there. So um, I would say this. I want to be clear. I don't think Roman Catholicism is necessarily a cult because they hold to the Trinity and all of that. 
I do believe there's true believers in the Roman Catholic Church of what about a billion it's estimated worldwide. I believe that there are some there. But I will also declare that if anyone has studied all of these doctrines and they say, yes, I believe that, but I'm still a Christian, I would say you're, you're greatly deceived. There's no way you can believe that Mary is a co-redeemer and be saved, right? Jesus is the only way. And so I do think there's so many that are ill-taught. Like I said, you're born into a Catholic family. This is all you know. You just, you know... We go to church, we, we, we call the guy in the robe a father and a priest, and, and we, we, we confess and it sends to the priest, and all of that. It's just, it, it's an indoctrination, and it's so sad because so many are so greatly deceived. So when I talk or witness to Roman Catholics, I'll mention a few of these, and do you actually believe that? And you think you're going to heaven? <laughs> like, there's, you're not going to heaven if you believe some of these things. Well, the list goes on and on. Actually, um, I meant to print out this. Um, or I might send this on email. Are you a Catholic or a Protestant? How clear is your understanding of Protestant theology? Test yourself and see. Evaluate each of the following ten paired statements and mark the one that you best thinks states the Protestant doctrinal position. Now, when I've used this over the years... Um, in various small groups and Bible studies, we'll pass it out, and then we'll actually like take the test, and, and invariably, at least one question is missed, you know, <laughs> by even well-meaning. So I'll give you an example. Okay, so there's two statements. Number one or number two? God gives a man right standing with himself by mercifully accounting him innocent and virtuous, or... God makes a man right standing with himself by actually making him an innocent and virtuous person. Which one's the Protestant view? It sounds pretty similar, right? So, okay, God gives a man a right standing with himself by mercifully accounting him innocent and virtuous. Notice accounting, justifying, declaring versus what Rome teaches, God gives a man right standing with himself by actually making him innocent and a virtuous person, right? So you see how subtle some of the differences are. Let me find another one. God accepts the believer because of the moral excellence found in Jesus Christ, or God makes the believer acceptable by infusing Christ's moral excellence into his life. Anytime you see infusing, that's Roman Catholic flags, right? Waving around. Let's see here. Okay, we receive, well, this is an easy one. We receive right standing with God by faith alone. Or we receive right standing with God by faith, which has become active by love. So they would say the second one there. Um, <clears throat> okay, here's a good one. We achieve right standing with God by having Christ live out his life of obedience in us. Or we achieve right standing with God by accepting the fact that he obeyed the law perfectly for us. Right? It's the second's a Protestant position. So 
anyway, just uh, you can Google that, actually. It's online. I was telling my wife this morning, I said, oh, man, I wonder where that's at in my files, because <laughs> I've had it like since the early 90s. And she just goes, oh, is this the title? I said, yeah. And then I went to my files app, and sure enough, it popped right up. So anyway, uh, fun little thing you can do with your kids, too. See how good you're catechizing them. Yeah. All right. So another thing that uh, Rome is known for is idolatry, right? I mean, we have a few flags in here. We have, we don't even have a cross in here, right? But they would have crucifixes. They'd have a slick willy on the cross, right? Um, you know, the guy with the slicked back hair. And is there one up there? Oh, yeah. Okay. Okay. There's nobody hanging on that one, though. <laughs> And that's right. I thought we had a cross. But, you know, a very plain religion. That's, that's why when the Reformation came, remember, the pulpit was put off to the side. What was in the middle? The altar. The altar, right? It was all about um, the uh, sacraments and all of that. So when the Reformation comes and there's a returning to that doctrine, it's a returning to what our catechism question was today. It's so good. The Spirit of God makes the reading and especially the preaching of the Word the effectual means of convincing and converting sinners and the building them up in holiness and comfort through faith unto salvation. So in the era of the Reformation, the altar is put aside, the pulpit then becomes central to what goes on. Also, all the uh, idols were torn down and taken, the plain worship of the Word, Exodus 20 and verse 3, you shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol in the likeness of what is in heaven or on earth beneath or the water under the earth. You shall not worship them or serve them for I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquities of the fathers of the children to the third and fourth generations. Several other key doctrinal differences um, obviously, Peter is not the first pope. Um, there's no record of Peter even going to Rome and the biblical data that we have. Um, they would say Peter was never married, but Mark chapter 1, right? It says right there, Peter's mother-in-law, Jesus heals, right? And then also the role of the church. The Bible declares that Christ is the head of the church, Ephesians 1, 23-ish. Um, very clearly, he, God has made him head over the church and over all things. Christ is the head of the church. You see it in Colossians as well. And they would say that the Pope is the head of the church. So even the way they've they structured things, they add all these cardinals and bishops and all these different offices, um, they are greatly different. Furthermore, they claim to have earthly priests, and those priests should be done away with, right? All the old, I mean, we just studied, what, three years in Hebrews. I mean, one thing we learned is there's no need of a Levitical priest. There's no need of any priest because we have the par excellence preach, priest, the Lord Jesus Christ, the great and final high priest. We have no need of earthly priests. The use of the word father, right? I mean, that still gets me when I talk to my stepmom or family members back in the Midwest that are still in this Roman Catholicism loosely into it. Oh, the father. I called the father to get some counsel. Really? 
<laughs> I call the Father often to get counsel on my knees and pray to God. But it says in Matthew 23, in the, the passage where Jesus says, Woe to you, call no man on earth your Father. You have but one Father in heaven. Again, you see how selective they, they are. That's why that sheet down here, what Catholics would find if they studied their own Bible, um, is remarkable because so many of these things are clearly set forth in Holy Scripture. Well, we believe there's one mediator between God and man, the man, Christ Jesus. The Roman Catholic Church uses its deceptive practices and ungodly traditions to also include a veneration of Mary. The Mary of Catholicism is a twisted, distorted Mary revealed in Scripture, who also gave birth to James and um, Joseph, Judas, Simon, and all of their sisters. But Rome rejects the scriptural proof that Mary had other children by infallibly declaring that she remained a virgin throughout her life, the perpetual virginity of Mary. Because they said it, that's true, right, versus what the Bible says. So this counterfeit Mary uh, is said to be another sinless mediator who is the cause of salvation for herself and the whole human race. That's the Catechism of the Catholic Church, paragraph 494. The elevation of the Virgin Mary by Catholics is completely unfounded in Scripture. Peter declares in Acts 4, there is salvation in no one else. There is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. No other name, right? <laughs> no other name but Christ. And their canon law, it says, the veneration and worship through public cult is permitted only to those servants of God who are listed in the catalog of the saints and with the blessing and authority of the Roman Catholic Church. They're saying veneration and worship is okay. If they've declared this saint a saint or whatever, and Mary. Now, here's the irony, and let's, let's just try to use a little bit of reason. How many books of the Bible is Mary, the mother of Jesus, mentioned? Very few, right? I don't even think it's mentioned in John, so it's really, well, no, at the end, at the tomb, yeah. Um, but still, very, very few times, right? You would think that if, that, if she's a co-redeemer, we'd have that on every page of Scripture. You'd think it'd be repeated again and again. It, we'd be reminded of it because it's so important. In fact, information about Mary and the Gospels is very, very sparse. I mean, we see it, the first one is the wedding of Cana. It's, we'll see that in John chapter 2. And it's, it's uh, an interesting language. Let me just read this. <clears throat> Actually, each of these occasions of Mary, Jesus does not take the opportunity to, oh, yes, mother, yes, Mary, you know, or whatever. No, none of that at all. In fact, it says... Um, and verse 4, this is the wedding, Cana, or sorry, verse 3. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does that have to do with us? 
my hour has not yet come. And it's actually a, a Hebrew idiom that really says this in the original, what to me and to you, what to me and to you, you know, it's a, it's a Hebrew idiom that really just kind of discounts what she's trying to say. But later, when she and the brothers of Jesus desired to talk with Jesus, Jesus responds this way, who are my mother and brothers but those who do the will of God, right? So he doesn't even acknowledge her necessarily there, but says it's those who do the will of God. And then another reference where a woman cries out in the crowd, uh, and, and calls the mother of Jesus blessed, but Jesus does not affirm her. Yes, she's right. My mother is, like, doesn't even affirm her, right? In fact, instead, he says, blessed are those who hear the word and observe it. Now, just taking that little short collection of, of verses, and, and how could you conclude that she's to be our co-redeemer and to be worshiped? that she's some kind of mediator that we can go to and expect to get help. That is pounded into Roman Catholics from the time of their catechism, their confirmation, and all of that, so that they begin to believe it and then perpetuate it to their other family members because, I mean, you just didn't question it, right, if you were brought up in a Roman Catholic church. Justification by faith alone, which is really the hallmark of the Protestant Reformation, um, the Council of Trent, condemns true biblical faith. It states this, if anyone shall see that justifying faith is nothing else than confidence in the divine mercy which remits sins for Christ's sake, or that it is this confidence alone by which we are justified, let him be anathema. In other words, if you, have, if you have confidence that your sins are forgiven and that it's and, and for Christ's sake that the sins have been remitted and you have confidence in divine mercy, let them be anathema. Um, thank you, brother. Uh, and then the Roman Catholic Catechism states this, justification is conferred at baptism, the sacrament of faith. It conforms us to the righteousness of God who makes us inwardly just by the power of his mercy. So, and then baptismal regeneration, we've kind of already mentioned, but paragraph 1263 says, by baptism, all sins are forgiven, original sin and all personal sins, as well as all punishment of sin. Now, what I find remarkable about this is all original sins. So somehow, the Roman Catholic baptism of having a little water sprinkled, conferred by a priest, right, with their liturgy, is able to take away Adam's sin? Just think about that, right? I mean, we all have original sin, and even once we're converted, no matter how godly of a life you live, you still have original sin, <laughs> Right? Because we are sinners in Adam. Also, true assurance. I kind of already made mention of this, but how many Roman Catholics have you talked to, family members, friends, and maybe you're talking about the things of eternity and heaven? Maybe you're at a funeral. And how often do you hear a Roman Catholic say, 
well, yeah, gee, I, I hope I make it there someday. There's just no assurance. I hope I'm good enough in the end, like that kind of thing. It's so prevalent. All believers should have a special relationship with God and to all who have received Christ, those who believed in his name, he has given the right to become children of God. We just studied that. Children not born of natural descent or human decision or of a husband's will, but born of God. The relationship of the Father, that God the Father has with his children is an eternal relationship, John 8. It is perfect, and nothing will ever separate his children from his love, Romans 8. Nothing will separate. Bear is reading, I think. Uh, Romans 8.35, who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, peril, or sword, just as it is written, for your sake we're being put to death all day long. We, have, we are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. But in all these things, we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. I am convinced that neither the Roman Catholic Church or some Roman Catholic priest or whatever, he says, I am convinced that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor debt nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. You know, all that phrase, in Christ, in Christ. We started a study on union with Christ uh, this last Thursday at our community group in Kearney Mesa. But that whole idea of being in Christ or through Christ is a picture of us being unified with Christ. You don't get unified with Christ and, you know, ununified and unified. It's not a back and forth thing. Just like we are not saved and then lose our salvation and we come back and we're saved again, right? Nothing. Nothing will separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. And then, of course, purgatory. I guess if somebody scratched out Hebrews 9, what is 927, right? It is appointed unto man, wants to die, and then what? The judgment, right? So <laughs> there's no middle ground. There's no, you know, kind of paying for some of this. That is just heresy. So, um, just in conclusion, and then I'll open it up for questions and comments. Um, the Lord Jesus, how, how do we witness to Catholics? Well, we can look at Christ's um, interactions with the Jewish people, and he asked hard questions, didn't he? He often put them in places to where they didn't know how to answer. If we say this, he'll say this. If we say that, and so he asked hard questions. And we too should ask questions to make the gospel known, to expose the errors of various religious leaders, and in this case, the Roman Catholic Church. Even Jesus challenged Nicodemus, right, in John 3. You see that uh, where it says... uh, you know, the ruler of the Jews and his knowledge of the kingdom of God. He goes, are you a teacher of Israel? And you do not even understand these things? So, um, to ask why do we not see all of these Catholic traditions and heresies in the first century church? That's a good question to ask. 
Take them to the book of Hebrews, the great and final high priest. Why do your religious leaders in your church, why do they take the name priest and father? Point out that Christ's work is enough. The finished work of Christ on the cross. There's no indulgences to to remit certain sins. And then the whole idea of church leaders being forbidden to marry. I mean, Paul addresses that clearly in 1 Timothy, right? He even talks about those who say, abstain from this food and and do not marry and all of that. And he, he makes it very clear. So, with that, that's, uh, I know I kind of raced through, but what about, what's some comments, some questions, um, maybe share your own personal experience, those of you who are former Roman Catholics. Dan? A little louder, Okay. Yes, and the, we'll interpret it for you. The very that's a really good point, and we really saw that abuse in a couple hundred years before the Reformation, where the people were illiterate; they were kind of peasants in the thirteen, fourteen hundreds. Many of the people, and that's exactly what was said. We'll interpret it for you. Uh, just this last week was the anniversary of William Tyndale. We all know that name, I hope. Translated. The Bible into English, and I think it was 1536 when he was burned at the stake for translating the scriptures into English. Think about that. <laughs> and then what was his parting prayer? Oh Lord, open the King of England's eyes. Okay, 1536-ish, what, about 20 years after the Reformation, the early the Puritan era would, would come about in 1580, just a couple decades later than the, the Puritan era, the 17th century. I mean, boy, was that prayer answered big time, you know? Okay, that's good. Good comment, Dan. Thank you for that. Andrew? So did um, so I don't think it's necessarily rooted in paganism. I could be wrong, but I mean, but man's heart is evil, continually and depraved. And when you have popes saying that they can speak ex cathedra, speak doctrine, whatever I say, this is the way it is. And so what? In six hundred, they encourage prayers directed to Mary, and so that whatever pope or whatever that was um, authorized that, but. I haven't heard about any paganism or anything, though. You have? Okay. Do you know anything about it? It was like this person who they worship that she loved this mother that she loved her kids, and she cried and cried, and everybody was like that. 
Comfort her, yeah. Okay. That story sounds familiar to me uh, now that you're saying it. Ah, interesting. Thank you. Other comments, uh, uh, Florian? <laughs> Hi, I'm a recovering Roman Catholic. <laughs> Right. This Mary is special because she gave birth to Jesus, and therefore Jesus is the only Son of God, but she must be. So that's kind of the, the logic behind it. And then, of course, it kind of got carried away to the point where now she's a cold giver. I don't know what tracks I'm saying. It's close enough. And then, uh, as far as, um, you know, sort of these, you know, where the, the religion kind of how I got to this was was part of the, you know, kind of the early you know, centuries where they had this tradition and, you know, back then there wasn't a scripture, so they, they claimed that this holy tradition was war until the scripture was actually written, so it was carried kind of verbally, and so that's how it was passed on, and so that's why they honored this holy tradition. Um, and everybody, oh, and the, the other thing they would say is, you know, they would say, oh, see, because you interpret the Bible how you wish, that's why you have so many sects, so many denominations. And we Catholic Orthodox, we don't have them. We're just one Catholic Orthodox because we have one entity that interprets mm-hmm. the Bible. So they would use that as <clears> that look how, how fragmented it is the Protestant world mm-hmm. as a sign that it's the wrong religion. Right. So religion has to be unified. That's kind of how Thank you. Helpful. Um, <laughs> okay. Ladies first, Rolla. Yeah, that's a good point, and I've yeah, that's true. And it's like it's easier to approach another human saint or whatever, uh, you know, than to go to God Himself, you know, or whatever. Yeah, right. And He's sinless, and He has compassion on us like no saint can. Aaron, and then Jen. That's true. And then the Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord, you know, uh, the prayer. Jen? It just 
<laughs> right. I think probably put on a shelf in the back room. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't know. It's kind of like the ignored person of the, the Trinity, right? Yeah. Oh, Oh yeah, yeah. Right, became patrons. Yeah, good. All right. Any others? Next week we're studying what? I think Europe. Hinduism and Buddhism. So this is a week you can kind of study and get some good questions. And I'm sure our intern will be ready to answer all of those questions. But I'm really looking forward to that because I feel like I'm kind of ignorant on a, on a lot of that stuff. So, um, And he lived in India for a while. And Were you a Hindu for a while? Oh, okay. <laughs> um, <laughs> Andrew. Right. What a great opportunity. Hey, I was in a Sunday school class, and boy, I didn't know some of these things that apparently the Roman Catholic Church teaches. Did you know about this? Do you believe this? You know, it's a good way to get some conversation going. Yes. Okay, Claudia. asking a question about that right okay yeah i think um so i ask good questions i should rephrase that and then jesus is known for asking hard questions to the jews so the motive should not be oh let me you know like walter martin said that the average jehovah's witness can knock on on the door and then talk to a christian for a while and twist him into a pretzel where he doesn't realize what he believes because so many christians are, are not Equip. So the goal is not to like humiliate or anything like that. But I would begin how assurance of salvation, how are we saved? You know, the, that's just kind of the core, right? I mean, and at funerals are a great time for that, you know, because death is on the brain, right? And it's like our friend or whatever just died. Are, are we prepared for that day? And what assurance do we have? So I think beginning with that. And then how they answer, I think, will guide you as to, well, do you pray to Mary then? Or are you, do you have hope in Mary or hope in what Christ has done, you know? So that's just a couple of things I would answer, yeah.
Jo- oh, yeah. So what are the church fathers? Those are like the Tertullian, Origen. These are like the the leaders of the church in the first couple centuries. Their works make up 39 huge volumes, um, which you want the the Bible software version of that if you have precious uh, church uh, space. But some of those can be read in such a way to where it's confusing. Are they really believing uh, are they leaning Protestantism or more like a Roman Catholic type of thing? But I think it's a careful study, looking at context and and that kind of thing. But that's interesting. I haven't heard that, that many people that convert to Catholicism, they say it comes from the church fathers. Yeah, I would stick with the well-known church fathers, the ones that you see. Like if you read John Calvin, John Calvin quotes them often. And so he went to the original sources, and um, and so did like a lot of the earlier writers would uh, would reference uh, the church fathers and give the actual reference and everything. And so, it's just a thought. <laughs> oh, Aaron. I think sometimes, just generally speaking, in the first few centuries, there was a little bit of ambiguity with believers about certain things that weren't fully study out and it wasn't until a council because of a heresy that they formalized doctrine that it was always true but it was never focused on so you can get some some, some muddiness that never really developed right you know, uh, and and that is the i mean that's the whole idea of coming to i mean the nicene creed you know it's like these creeds that even wrestled with formulating the holy trinity it took a couple hundred years for that to come about right and so there is a, a whole idea of, of how throughout church history, how we're growing in our understanding more and more of what the Bible teaches. And, um, and, and that's a good thing. So, all right, let's pray. Father, thank you so much for these dear ones that uh, has given of their time, Lord. We pray your blessing upon um, our interactions with Roman Catholics, Lord, that First of all, just give us a burden for them I, to think about upwards of a billion souls that are deceived into believing some of these things. Lord, uh, and we all know many. I think of even some of my neighbors that I've had some good discussions with. Lord, give us opportunity um, to discuss some of these things. And we pray that you would bring many out of that, that many would come to saving faith in Christ. And Lord, we, we pray for uh, the rest of our series, the, the next six lessons, and even um, our brother Joshua for next week. Lord, we pray that you'd bless him and his preparations and the others that we'll be teaching as well. Thank you for this time. In Jesus' name, amen. Don't forget to grab this booklet if you like it. There's really good quotes about their doctrine in here.